0: A custom algorithm takes it a step further, and we wanna dive into exactly what the client needs. Perhaps the client really wants to focus on reaching users in specific zip codes or specific demographics. The custom algorithm lets us do all of that at once in a very customer-specific manner.
1: So we think we don't replace what a trader does. We think we give a trader a job that is less um, manual, tactical, boring, mundane.
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The App Pod. Today, I'm joined by Ali Manning and Tylen Petri. Ali and Tylan are from Chalice, and Chalice are a custom algorithm company. They build algorithms for media buyers all around the world. And today, we're going to be talking about algorithms in media buying. What is a custom algorithm? What role does it play? How important is it? How about the machine learning that sits behind it? I have tons of questions on this field, and I actually think it's probably one of the most misunderstood, but yet soon to be one of the most important areas of media buying. So all that leads me to say is, I hope you enjoy Season 2, Episode 4 of The AdPod. Pod. Hey Ali, hey Tylin, welcome to The AdPod. It's great to have you both here. Um, Before we get into the questions on algorithms and particularly custom algorithms, uh, for those who don't know you, would you mind giving a quick introduction to your career and then what you do now? I guess, Ali, if you don't mind starting.
1: Sure. Happy to. Um, Thanks for having us on. So um, so yeah, I cut my teeth in digital advertising back in the day at Razorfish when it was actually Avenue A Razorfish, so it was agency side. Then got picked up by Google, um, first to be a sales analyst, but then ultimately joined their um, operations team running the, their go-to-market for brand advertisers in the U.S. Um, so pretty sizable business, about $5 billion a year, growing 40% year over year, um, doing all things in terms of working with the sales team on how to bring the par- product to market for brand advertisers, which included a lot of YouTube and of course the emerging category of programmatic. Um, I then got snapped up by Snapchat to build its revenue operation. Um, and that was really fun to be there at an early stage, um, where sales were all done in handshakes. And by the time I left, we had a full self-service platform. And so those experiences have really informed my, um, role at chalice which is now to be the COO, i'm also a co-founder and i run our you know go to market so that includes sales and marketing plus all of the fun um operational stuff like finance hr um and just like the core core business operation
2: awesome and how about you tylan
0: Hi, um, so I'm a more recent graduate. I have a master's degree in math and I'm a part-time PhD student in statistics. So I started working with Chalice right out of school as a data scientist. My background uh, is largely in machine learning. So I specialize in building different machine learning algorithms for our clients and working with all different sorts of data and models to produce the best results for everybody.
2: Awesome. I've been really looking forward to this because Um, algorithms are something or a term that's banded around the industry quite widely. And I think there's some some people misunderstand how they work, what they do, the role of them, etc, etc. So I thought a a good place to start would be to sort of take a step back and explain like, what is an algorithm? And then specifically in advertising, why do buyers kind of need them in their campaigns? So
1: I'm going to jump in with the high level answer that is, as it relates to our industry of digital advertising, but then I'd love for Tylan, because she is a data scientist to give us a bit of a deeper answer. But so in our context of digital advertising, um, algorithms are really just a set of decisioning rules about what ad to get in front of what person, in what moment, in what context and at what price, right? And so you could think of them as just a bunch of if-then statements. I bet a lot of our listeners here know if-then statements because they probably are Power Excel users. But even if you weren't, right, it looks something like if this bid request, this ad opportunity is on Paramount Plus in this zip code and not on this sketchy SSP and is female and is age 30 to 45 um, and her current frequency is three, and she only occasionally streams ad-supported TV, bid $20, right? And then you can imagine a whole other set of if statements that end with, but if she streams TV all of the time, let's bid $10, because we probably can go find her in other areas. So um, so that is an algorithm as it relates to digital advertising, but I'd love for Tylan to just jump into maybe a more broad definition of algorithms And maybe help us all understand algorithms and models and how those two definitions play with one another.
0: Sure. Thanks, Sally. So that's a great overview of what an algorithm is. More specifically in the data science world, and you can think of an algorithm as just a set of instructions. What are we trying to accomplish and how do we do it? So within that, There's another category of things that we call models. So we have a broad overview of what we're trying to accomplish with our algorithm. Then we can look at different models to do that. So we use artificial intelligence. We can dig down and pick a specific machine learning model or a specific statistical learning model and really drive into the weeds of how we want to accomplish that.
2: Awesome. That's great. That makes tons of sense. And then I see the term custom algorithm used a lot and aren't sort of all algorithms custom by design because they've got different rules and um, so what would be the difference between an algorithm and a custom algorithm, I guess?
0: Um, I can take that. Um, an algorithm can be as custom as you want it to be. So, for example, there's something in Amazon called Autopilot. That's a very general catch-all machine learning model that ingests your data set from let's say OpenRTB data and then outputs the results. If you wanna predict conversions, maybe we're trying to drive purchase of a retail item, you would tell that autopilot algorithm to predict conversions using your data and it'll give you some results. A custom algorithm takes it a step further And we want to dive into exactly what the client needs. Perhaps the client really wants to focus on reaching users in specific zip codes or specific demographics. Maybe they want to reach multiple KPIs. Maybe we want to target not only purchase completes, but we also want to do something about brand awareness or incrementality. The custom algorithm lets us do all of that at once in a very customer-specific manner.
2: That's really clear. One of the things I find really interesting with um, data is how much are you led by the data versus how much you led by the client so as you were saying then the example might be the client wants to do x but then what if you were finding that the data is saying why how do you kind of refine your algorithms based on either what you're finding or what the client wants if that makes sense
0: we've had a lot of interesting conversations about that um we have one client where they wanted us to target a particular conversion event. And we had to look at the data and go back to them saying, well, it's just not there. We can't build a model on this. The data just isn't right where we need it to be. So it's a discussion. So then we'll go back to the client. We'll find out, well, perhaps there's another uh, conversion event that we can target. And then we'll go from there. There's a lot of back and forth that we can do as a custom algorithm company that would get lost in the noise with something like Amazon Autopilot. You would never be able to get that level of customization at each step.
2: Yeah. And I, I, I often see what Chalice posts on LinkedIn and a lot of thought leadership and it's around transparency in those algorithms and those models. Um, Ali, can you talk to that? Like, why is that so important to you?
1: Yeah. Well, so we think that programmatic advertising, um, got a bad reputation for fair reasons. Um, most of those reasons around non-transparency, usually so that um, people could make a lot of margin. <laughs> um, and so we just decided to be transparent to a fault so that we um, are defensible in terms of being a solution that a customer would want to adopt. Um, but also because, and because we wanna be fair in pricing, but also because we think that, you know, what really drives um, programmatic buyers um, and, and more and strategic decision makers are insights, right? And so when an algorithm is shared by many advertisers, you can't make the inner workings of that algorithm transparent because um, all you know data is commingled. So because we actually um, build each algorithm per advertiser, that allows us to actually open up what's going on inside of it, what are the predictive variables, um, which I think Thailand could speak in more detail, um, but that opens up a ton of insight, right? Like what is actually, what is predictive for the client, right? What is not so predictive? Um, where, where are um, expectations misaligned? With what is actually going on in the world. And that generates a lot of useful insights that leads to more testing and ultimately better results. Um, And so we sort of, you know, we've staked our flag in transparency because we believe it's the right thing to do and customers will know they're not being ripped off. (laughs) Um, But also because we really, I think we're all really curious. Um, It's part of the company culture, and we think that. Curiosity extends to most smart marketers. Um, and so, yeah, by opening things up, you can actually satisfy that curiosity.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. I think just in general, on as you say, the history of programmatic somewhat black box in a lot of instances. And I think anything which removes some of those barriers and, and educates and the have a collaborative and productive relationship with brands and buyers is, is only good. So it's great that that's being championed. Um, This question, it might be so how long is a piece of string, but I'll ask anyway, um, how much data and what type of data do you need for like an algorithm to be successful?
0: It depends on what the client wants and what the DSP is. So I'll give you a particular example. Let's say that we were working to drive retail conversions and we were using a DSP such as uh trade desk. Uh, what we would need is about 1000 conversion events to model on. So I would need historical data from customers who purchased this product and then several million impressions is ideal, but at least a couple hundred thousand to train the model. And within that, we typically narrow things down to 10 features, sometimes as low as three, if we find that three are just incredibly predictive. And by features, um, those are things like sites, zip codes, supply vendor, and so on. So I think we've gotten very good at working with a minimal set of data and producing excellent results as a data science team. That's something that we pride ourselves on.
2: Yeah, I, I thought when asking that, it was, it was, I imagine you've got, if you have a ton of data, like in this conversion and conversion events, it's like high frequency, um, you can train your models, it's so much data, whereas it just starts to get, I guess, get a little bit harder. And maybe, maybe, Ali, this is one for you is, where, where do algorithms not work in programmatic buying?
1: That is a great question. So um so the only time we found them not to work, and by work I mean not beat whatever business is usual. So usually we're, you know, baking off with just the standard DSP algorithm or um potentially baking off with a campaign that has manual optimization sort of designed around the same outcome. Um we usually have only found it not to work if um we've had a real constraint around time or data volume, as Tylan was saying. Um, And usually that is like under less than two weeks to prove yourself out. Um, And like Tylan was saying, like fewer than a thousand conversions. Um, Otherwise, we've pretty consistently found that algorithms work well. Um, I guess the one place where maybe we don't get started with people, and so in that case, algorithms don't work, is where a, an advertiser really doesn't have a clear sense of what they, what KPI they really care about. Um, sometimes that's to our advantage, because if they're like, well, I really care about both site visits and signups, let's say we can do that. We can actually balance those two KPIs and um, experiment with balance, with, you know, weighting them um, but if a client really just doesn't have a sense of what the success metric is um it's you know i think it's hard for any anyone in advertising not just an algorithm company to figure out what to what to do
2: that makes sense and you know, as you're talking i'm kind of like this is amazing i'm really buying into it so where <laughs> where do you get resistance like why wouldn't a buyer go you should be using custom algorithms like what what kind of challenges do you face when you talk to people about it
1: yeah so um, an advisor told me recently and I love it he said you know be aspirin and fix the headache don't be the multivitamin that makes things like generally better but you can't exactly tell how it's how it's um, you know adding to your wellness. And I think that's our biggest in market challenge right now is that we've been at least positioning ourselves more as this, you know, this multivitamin of like, it's going to make, you know, lots of things better, um, sort of, you know, what broad, broadly targeted across your advertising set, um, you know, maybe you take your vitamin for better skin or better hair. Um, and so we can target those, you know, different things with our different formulas um, and so that you know that just presents sort of a lot of or can present lack of urgency for folks, right? Everyone has a ton of stuff going on. Um, however, what I would say is we have a huge advantage right now in a way, which is that all of the changes to privacy are making advertisers rethink their you know third party data strategy or just their you know how they're going to work in a cookieless environment. And we're, you know, a secret weapon in making your first and second party data like really powerful. So we're starting to become the aspirin for the headache. Um, and yeah, and that that's exciting. E- either way, though, it's just been like a lot of education. We're a completely new category. And I think your earlier question kind of hit, it, hit our biggest qu- uh, point of resistance on the head, which is like. Isn't this already available in my DSP? Like my DSP has an algorithm. Why is this better?
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I guess some people think they're already using algorithms in some way. And uh I, yeah, I actually have sort of two follow-up questions, I guess. The the first one is um when buyers do say that, like oh, we're already selecting the algorithms that are already pre-built into the DSPs. Is it difficult to prove the point of difference that you might add or, or any sort of customer in the company might add or, or not, that makes sense?
1: Well, Tylin has just brought to market an amazing product we're calling SmartBid, which is um, basically, I would call it a better version of um, bid shading or predictive clearing, uh, right? It's about bidding the lowest to win while still um, pacing the budget as you'd like. And um, I think she could talk more about it, Um, but we're starting to get really concrete ideas of of how much better we can be than a DSP algorithm. And just before she jumps into it, what I would say is the DSPs have all like built these capabilities for custom algorithms. They're out in market, you know, selling them themselves. Um, and so it's a win-win when customers use a custom algorithm. And we were talking to someone high level at the trade desk today. And we're like, well, we're about to come to market with something that, um, might save customers more money than predictive clearing. Is that going to be an issue <laughs> for our relationship? And he's like, I don't see an issue about it at all. If that's the case, our product team is going to be super interested. Um, you know, we think that delivering customers better results is always a win and, um, uh, yeah, so, but anyway, Kylan, do you want to talk a little bit about SmartBid and what's behind that?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, the idea came about because now that we're uh, primarily dealing with first price auctions, it's almost normal for advertisers to significantly overpay for a given impression. And we've heard a lot from clients complaining about the best way to fix that if we don't know that we, the second best offer on something was $10 and we bid 15, it's difficult to figure out exactly what we should bid without affecting our pacing and our win rates. So what we did is we built a model that takes all of this into account. We take in the historical pricing, we look at the win rates, we look at our pacing, and we run a machine learning model that will tell us the optimal bid that we should be paying without affecting anything else. And we found excellent savings um, in the 20 to 30% range for a large amount of clients.
1: The reason I brought up SmartBid wasn't just because it's an amazing product and I own go-to-market and want to sell you something potentially. But the reason I brought it up is because it's a great example of we can just be more aggressive than a DSP algorithm, right? Where we model more granularly because since we're doing one advertiser at a time, we can go deeper, right? We can go deeper than DMA. We can go to zip code. Um, but also, you know, the DSPs have to be very sensitive and sort of conservative with their predictions most of the time, mostly because they're predicting across a lot of advertisers, right? And so they sort of make more small, delicate changes um, in terms of like bidding up or down. And we can just be really confident in what our algorithm is doing since it's such specific data. Um, and so we can be more aggressive, whether that's like smart bid, which is getting you cost savings or whether that's like bidding up on high value um, ad opportunities, because we think those are like high lifetime value consumers for you.
2: That's awesome. I, and it's funny because I remember when bid shading as a concept was, came about and publishers felt like, oh, you're working against us. But the easy counter argument to that is, well, if it doesn't work, we just turn it off entirely so so do you want you know do, do you want ten dollars though regularly or never 15 it's like well you probably have to take some of the revenue and so it's funny how you want to meet that kind of equilibrium where publishers are getting rewarded for all the good stuff that they do and buyers are having campaigns that work and I mean to do that just a, a human mind could not do that so it makes a ton of sense why you'd um kind of apply the, the kind of models in, in that way um and then I said I had two questions. So my second follow-up to your points, Ali, were um, how about sort of the human side? You know, there's a a bit of a cottage industry of programmatic traders who go around, they tell their friends they're sort of trading programmatic campaigns all day. Um, do they ever feel like they might be under threat because of potentially being replaced or, or how do you see that sort of, sort of play out?
1: Yeah, okay. So talking about, what we do versus what a trader would do, right? Or do we, the question was, do we replace a trader?
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. When you, when you're in the market and pragmatic traders think you might be there to sort of take their job.
1: Yeah. Well, so the first thing we like to say is that competitors go out in the market and say, we do what we automate, what a trader does. We say we automate what a trader can't do. So um, imagine if you hired a new team member who, for any given campaign, could calculate the optimal bid for every combination of site, zip code, and hour of week. That would be 5 billion different bids that they would be setting. So the first thing you would do is stop trying to calculate those bids yourself. (laughs) Um, The second thing you would probably do is become curious about why they're doing what they're doing. And from that curiosity would spring a lot of strategic, interesting work around um, hypotheses and tests, more advanced analytics. So we think we don't replace what a trader does. We think we give a trader a job that is less um, manual, tactical, boring, mundane stuff in the UI, um, right? Like shifting budgets, changing bids. and going to uh, more strategic conversations with the advertiser um, to understand why, where revenue is popping off and why. um, We think that becomes like a much more interesting job. Um, Yeah, I guess what I would also say is we have some really amazing former programmatic strategy trader folks on our team and in our customer success team. And what they have noted to us is like, wow, we the stuff we're pulling around frequency distributions and other stuff we're doing for clients, um, that stuff we would try to get at our agency, the analytics teams to create them, because you can't create custom queries without knowing SQL and Python and they just couldn't get it done right because it would need to be sold to a client first and those resources are so limited and so what they've been most excited about coming to Chalice is like wow like I can turn to Thailand or Tucker get a custom query answered and like have a lot more insight into what's going on.
2: Yeah that's awesome I, I think it the narrative around it—it's to do what you can't do. That is the role of the machines in general, in every sort of, right? Tech, in every sort of technical evolution we've ever seen, it doesn't mean that you know people just change and their roles evolve, and it, you can't ever get stuck in one way of doing things, especially in a, an in industry which is as fast-paced as digital media and the internet in general goes through so much change all the time. So, um, I always think whenever I hear that resistance of how a human can be better it's like it's not necessarily one or the other it's how the two work in harmony I mean that's typically where you see buyers have most success I guess and that leads me into my next question I think this one might be for you Tylin. but machine learning is just a, a vast field and it perhaps you know again a bit technical and sometimes how it gets applied in digital media I think gets maybe a little bit misunderstood but I'm just kind of interested to know how, sort of what types of machine learning do you apply? Just because the, if you go down a Wikipedia hole on it, it's, there, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, from studying it, it's it's so much more vast than I think people might expect. So it'd be great to know, like, where do you start with kind of selecting the different approaches you might use and, and which ones do you, without giving away the secret source, like which kind of do you see work works well?
0: Absolutely, you're right. You could find thousands, if not tens of thousands of types of machine learning algorithms of largely what we do um, is a small subset of machine learning because we have a lot of what we call categorical data. I can't see my machine learning models numbers. We have things like site and we have things like supply vendor. So there are not as many machine learning algorithms that can work with that type of data. So it helps narrow it down. Uh, what we do as a data science team is we'll find some of the best approaches where we read a lot of research for what type of machine learning algorithms are best suited to solve this problem. And one that we have found particularly useful is what's called a decision tree based method. It's called CatBoost. And what that does is it takes all of your categorical data and then ingests it and automatically translates it into something that the algorithm can interpret so it speeds up the learning process but it also allows us to pull very very large amounts of categorical data in that other algorithms just will not allow us to do so it's a trade-off of the best performing algorithm and also computational time and then also something that gets us to where we're producing output that the client needs.
2: Yeah how do you how do you kind of balance that sort of accuracy in the model to a very low or high percentage versus just speed and getting it done like how do you sort of how do you weigh out that decision
0: sure so we're typically working with very like you said imbalanced data sets uh we always have a little bit of conversions and large amounts of data so there's something that we use called synthetic data that'll introduce similar data to give the model more the train on so we'll run that Um, we also typically have a threshold for accuracy that we're shooting for so we will run a quick initial model to get a feel for the data. And then after that, we'll expand computational time and runtime until we are satisfied that our metrics are met.
2: Yeah, so This is obviously really interesting. You've built the custom algorithm or you know, you, you know what's going on. How do you then actually apply it into a DSP? Kind of what's the process?
0: So it depends on the DSP, Uh, everyone has their own method and they're wildly different, not even close to comparable. So we have a strategy for each. Uh, Let's use trade desk as an example. What we'll get is an output of features we want to include in the model and the value that we have for each bid based on those combinations. So if we want to say yahoo.com and Pubmatic supply vendor from a certain zip code, we'll have a value assigned to that of let's say $5.50. What we then do is use some API function calls that our engineering team has developed to upload that directly to Trade Desk with a couple keystrokes. And then that's set, activated and ready to run. For something like DV360, they take a script of Python if else statements and a little uh, bit of some other statements in there, but it's essentially a long list detailing what to do in all of these cases. Then for something like media math, it would take a logistic regression model and we would tell it what the values are for each feature we include. And Charles has built out processes for this so that it's all automated. The minute that our models are done running, we just apply it directly to the DSP.
2: That's cool. It's, it's kind of interesting that the DSPs have different approaches, I guess. Is there any reason why they have they all do it slightly differently? <laughs>
1: Um, Well, I think part of it is maturity, right? Media math was the first, I think, to really build this functionality. Um, And so, you know, so so it was built at a certain moment with a certain kind of technology set available. Um, And I think also the DSPs maybe have different um, philosophical approaches to things, right? Like we, so Google's custom bidding is very powerful and has great results but it doesn't actually let us control the bid, right? So what we're sort of doing is giving it guidance about what's more valuable and what's less valuable. And I think that kind of reflects Google's strategy of like, no, we're going to control the bid because we play both the supply and the buying side, right? Right. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You're trying to feed a machine learning model to a neural
0: network. So what we do for Google is we essentially tell it what we value, how much we value it, and then it gets fed to their own neural network. It's a little different than what we do for all of the other DSPs where we're building the algorithm completely from scratch ourselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. And the trade desk, I think like they built Koa, I think along a philosophical line of, of what they call bid expressiveness. And so multidimensional bidding, which is what a custom algorithm is in trade desk is pretty much what Koa is just at a much more right granular, powerful level. So, um, so yeah, but we we think it's it's to our advantage of chalice that all these DSPs are wildly different because it means that it's wildly complex to try to um do this yourself. <laughs> and so, and also I think you know, we've spent a couple of years, several million dollars to like build technology that plugs into these DSPs really seamlessly. And so we think that, you know, that's what we tell investors is like that's our big competitive moat, is that this isn't easy.
2: That's awesome. Um, this has been really interesting and somewhat enlightening to be honest. It's been great to hear, um, a sort of the differences between what you might get in a DSP and just like custom algorithms and theory. And then also I just find the, the application of this in media, given how vast, you know, if you think about bid requests, as like hundreds of data points and, uh, what you're trying to achieve with the data and how it can actually work in practice. Um, I think it's, it's, it's amazing. It's very, I think it's one of the most exciting times and Ali, you made a really good point around this sort of removal of third party cookies, which I think buyers have been very reliant on because it's such a strong data signal that that going away just means you're going to have to look at bigger data sets and look at the patterns and how the factors kind of all play and, you can't do that by pulling a report every five minutes out of a DSP. So, so I, I think it's really interesting. And um, I, I think people listening will find this interesting and if they wanted to find out more about Chalice and also, you know, kind of your thought leaderships and, and, and custom algos, where's the best place for them to go?
1: Sure. So you could certainly go to our website, chalice.ai. Um, But we're also, uh, the three founders are really active on LinkedIn, and I think that can be a more sort of fun, dynamic way to follow us. Um, So I'm Allie Manning, um, Adam Heimlich, and Ken Rona are our three founders, um, and sort of get windows into the world of Chalice through there. Um, Yeah, I think those those are the best ways to follow us at the current moment.
2: Awesome. I will definitely vouch for that as well. The, the chalice LinkedIn, the, the conversations are amazing. So it's definitely worth uh, people following. Uh, thank you both so much for your time. This has been amazing. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having us, Wayne. It was fun to, to talk about this stuff with you. Yeah, thank you.
2: Well, there we go. Another episode of the AdPod in the books. I really enjoyed that one. It's a bit of a departure when you go quite deep into things like machine learning from you know, most of our regular day-to-day roles. But it's so fascinating. You think about how lots of machine learning is already baked into technology and there's some things you can do you know, quite easily. But you can also really see how a company like Chalice and the team there add value by building something more bespoke and more custom. So anyway, I know I found that really useful. I hope you did too. And until next time... See you soon.